Good morning. When these things begin to take place, stand up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. Luke 21, verse 28. Choir rehearsal tonight at 5. Studies in Ezra begins at 6. Bring finger foods as usual. Prayer meeting Wednesday at 7. The 40-something group will be meeting Friday the 26th at the Stiff Residence at 6.30, and they'll be finishing up the uh, Bob Duco series and then deciding on uh, what's next in that study. The Andrea's texting number there for the prayer chain. Uh, you'll note on the foyer table the Acts and Facts and Free Grace broadcasters are here. Kind of short on announcements today. Anything else that I've missed or forgotten? Our scripture for meditation this morning is taken from 2 Corinthians, the third chapter, reads 7 through 18. stand together and open our service in prayer. Ed, can you open for us today? Thanks. 
morning. Will you please take your uh, brown hymnal this morning and turn to number 521. 521 in the brown. I told her that she might not get called on this week. <laughs> All right, Naomi. Yes, ma'am. In which one? Which book, honey? In the brown. 197. In the brown. And it's I Love to Tell the Story. All right. Why do we? No. Are you sure? 297. There it is. And do we have a reason for this one this morning?
Thank you. Scripture reading is Luke, the 21st chapter, and we'll be reading 25 through 31. If you'll stand with me, we'll read together.
There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Ask that the Lord bless his word. Please take your red hymnal this time, the red trinity, and turn to number 253, 253 in the red.
Our scripture text is found in Luke chapter 21. Our last study contained a lot of biblical history as we considered the joy of fulfilled prophecy mostly dealing with Jesus' prediction of the fall of Jerusalem and the total destruction of the temple, which of course are signs of the coming events. Under Roman rule, Palestinian Jews engaged in a number of wars in an attempt to curb or overthrow altogether the emperor's intrusion into their monotheistic worship of God. They also did not like the idea of being taxed to death, which they they were. Well, they were taxed almost into poverty. Their own livelihood was therefore in jeopardy. We learned, however, that God had another agenda in mind in orchestrating the destruction of the temple. When Christ appeared as God's son and the promised Messiah, the Jewish leaders objected and they disowned him. He was not the kind of Messiah they were looking for. They wanted a military Messiah who would exalt Israel and defeat Rome. They didn't get it in Jesus. What is more, they had no intention of ending the animal sacrifices or any of the other traditions of their faith. So, I can put it this way, God ended it for them. (laughs) He did by sending Titus' army into Jerusalem in A.D. 70, and he raised the temple to the ground, not so much as leaving one stone upon another. And that, in effect, ended Jewish worship in its old covenant context. And ever since the Jewish faith has been devoid of its temple and devoid of its atoning animal sacrifices. Think about this. Centuries have passed. And this is a good thing. It's a good thing for it is Christ that they should be worshiping and understand to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Those animal sacrifices were but a shadow or or a type of the great lamb of God who was going to come and be sacrificed at Calvary. They have yet to understand that. They have yet to accept that. They're still looking, looking, looking for the Messiah to come. He's already come. But someday their eyes will be open. Romans 9 says their eyes will be open, and they will come to know what we have known for centuries. Well, today's study then moves us closer to our day in history as we consider the joy of redemption near, near. And as we come, let us ask the Lord to be our teacher. Father, send your spirit upon us. There's a blindness that has happened. The scripture says a blindness in part has happened to Israel. Thankfully, it's not total blindness because there are Christians among the Jewish people. In fact, we support some missions that deal with that. So we're thankful that you're bringing out of Abraham's seed, the true seed of Abraham, the spiritual seed. We pray that that will happen more and more as the day approaches for your coming. 
And help us to understand and to love and to pray for and to anticipate your return. Because we know that uh, the world is in turmoil right now. It will be until you come and set all things right, all things new in a new heaven and a new earth. Bless and study as we study your word together. May Christ be exalted in whose name we pray. Amen. We're in Luke's Gospel, chapter 21, and we're looking at the subject, the joy of redemption near. The first thing I would bring out in this text is the convulsions in the heavens are a sign of redemption near. Look at verse 25. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. There will be signs. So these are Heavenly bodies, but they have, uh, you know what a sign does, don't you? A sign tells you some, where to go. It tells you what's coming. You're going down the road, you're looking for another road, and you're looking for the sign that says Dryden Road four miles ahead, or whatever the case may be. Uh, Lake Pleasant Road, down the road a ways. The signs are important to lead us where we want to go and direct us. And also tell us what's coming if we think of prophetic signs. Verse 25, there will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars. Well, undoubtedly, there are other bodies in the heavens, right? We give them such names as asteroids, meteors, comets. But Jesus names the three categories that concern us most. Sun, moon, stars, illuminaries. And it's important because those other things, asteroids, meteors, and so on, are not visible everywhere in the various hemispheres of our Earth at one and the same time. They're here today and gone tomorrow. But the sun, the moon, and the stars, they're visible everywhere. And what is more, these three categories, sun, moon, stars, have been the objects of worship by idolaters throughout the centuries and are therefore important in terms of our day as well. Why? Because they continue to be worshipped in our day. You say, well, I don't worship the sun and the moon and the stars. Yeah, well, you're in the minority because there's a lot of people that do if we take into account mankind. And if you think that only the naked aborigines in the bush would view such inanimate objects as their god, you need to consider all the Americans who view the position of the stars and their placement in the zodiac as the real power that controls their lives. It's unbelievable. This is why astrological charts, this is why daily horoscopes are an obsession with so many stupor superstitious people. By the way, the Greek horoscope, horo, meaning hour, skopos, to observe. These are Greek words. Hence, to observe the hours. That's what horoscope means. To observe the hours. The date of your birth or other indicators of time and space. And since the stars were or are used legitimately to obtain one's geographical position, remember that mariners in the past, at least, 
used a sextant instrument. It was, uh, became a, a, a means by which they could chart their courses out on the oceans by zoning in on where the stars are. So it became a small leap of faith to conclude that such heavenly bodies also control one's spiritual destiny, not just the geographical destiny. Hence the worship of what are viewed as powerful energy fields in the heavens. Now, pagan cultures still worship the stars, still worship the sun. And historically, many cultures worship the sun and the moon, and many religions still do. Surya is the sun god of Hinduism. Surya rides across the sky in a chariot, they say. Tonatiyath is the Aztec, Aztec sun god. Tonatiyath. Inti is the Inca sun god. Helios is the Greek sun god. Apollo is the Roman sun god. They're everywhere. The worship of the sun. And I wish it were the S-O-N, but it's the S-U-N that they're worshiping. Uh, probably the best known of all of this is Ra, R-A, the Egyptian sun god. The deity the Egyptians worshipped at the time of Moses and the Exodus. Actually, the Egyptians had different names for their sun god as it related to the sun's position in the sky. So as the sun changed its position, they just changed the name. Kefri for the rising sun. Atum, Atum, A-T-U-M. Like, doesn't that sound like our season of the year? The setting of the sun. The setting of the sun. Ra, the sun at high noon, which rode across the sky on a solar barge. You've all seen the symbols of Ra, an all-seeing eye disc atop the dome of a falcon-headed man. Ra. Now let us keep in mind that the God of the Bible did battle with the false gods of Egypt, including Ra. In the plagues that God sent upon Pharaoh in the great contest between him and Moses over the issues of releasing the Israelites from bondage. Pharaoh was a hard case. He was strong-willed by God's own hand because of his determination not to lose the slave labor that he was using to build his monumental cities, according to Exodus 1, verse 11. Upon their first encounter, Pharaoh said to Moses, and this is so revealing, at least he was being doubly honest. People of our day don't quite say it quite as honest as this. Here's what he said. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? And let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Boy, was he putting his cards on the table, or what, as he spoke to Moses and Aaron. I don't know the Lord, and I'm not, you know, I do not know the Lord, and I'm not going to let Israel out of Egyptian bondage. 
See, God had informed Moses that such would be the case, saying this, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my miraculous signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Exodus 7, verse 3 and following. And in verse 14, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is unyielding. He refuses to let the people go. And then began the plagues. The Nile was turned to blood, you remember. Beginning about God's belittlement of the power of the Egyptian gods, because they worshiped the Nile. And in the ninth plague, then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards the sky so that darkness will spread over Egypt, darkness that can be felt. Felt. So, Moses stretched out his hand toward the sky and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or leave his place for three days. Yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. Exodus 10, verse 21 through 23. So you know it was a miraculous situation. How can darkness be all over Egypt, but not in a certain place in Egypt where the Israelites were confined? Dee and I experienced this kind of darkness one time in our life, and I want to tell you, it was, it was disconcerting. There's a cave in Pennsylvania called Penn's Cave. Oh, big, big <laughs> uh, revelation there. It's called Penn's Cave. It's in Pennsylvania. Uh, what it is, is there's an underground lake in this cave. And we're not talking a little, you know, Stoop down, crawl in kind of cave. We're talking a mammoth cave. Mammoth cave opening. And you tour it by boat. You get in a boat and you travel back through the caverns, various locations in this cave. Back, back, back we moved this little motorboat. And when we were in the deepest recesses of the cave, our guide switched off the lights. Switched off the lights. The darkness could be felt. And though I was sitting right next to Dee, I could not see her. I raised my hand in front of my eyes, and I could not see my hand. I couldn't see my fingers. Marvelous as the human eye is, it needs some amount of trace light to see. So we experience for this first time in our lives, our only time, what it must be like to be blind. No light. And as I say, it was a disconcerting experience to say the least. You know, hell is described in the Bible as outer darkness. 
I hear people say, well, at least I'm going to be with my friends down there in hell. <laughs> well, you may be with them, but you won't see them. You will have no sense of presence. What you will sense is aloneness and utter darkness. When God blanketed the sun that day in Egypt, it was an attack on Ra. And it demonstrated to Pharaoh and his people that it was the God of Israel who controlled the illuminations of their world. He could even lighten up the homestead of the Israelites while encapsulating the rest of Egypt in darkness so black, so penetrating that it could be felt. A darkness that black, a darkness that close at hand, is suffocating emotionally, I can tell you. It is. No, the, no wonder the Egyptians stayed put in their homes for three days. They weren't out. <laughs> there was no commerce, there was no travel, there was no visitation of your friends. All of that just ceased. They stayed home. All the plagues of Egypt were aimed at their idol gods as a demonstration that God is one, not many. God is omnipotent and does whatever he pleases without men's permission, without their ability to thwart his will. And at the completion of the tenth plague, the last plague, God summarized his actions, and this is the way he said it, On that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. Exodus 12, verse 12. That's what the contest was all about. And in reflecting on the Exodus, Moses writes, The Israelites set out from Ramses, On the 15th day of the first month, the day after the Passover, they marched out boldly in full view of all the Egyptians who were burying all their firstborn, whom the Lord had struck down among them. For the Lord had brought judgment on their gods. Numbers 33, verse 3 and 4. That's what the contest was all about. Who's God? Who's to be loved? Who's to be worshipped? And God was making a case for himself. In their later history, when Israel forsook God and began to worship again the gods of Egypt, Jeremiah predicted, he referring to God, God will set a fire to the temple of the gods of Egypt. He will burn their temples and take their gods captive As a shepherd wraps his garment around him, so will he wrap Egypt around himself and depart from there unscathed. There in the temple of the sun in Egypt, he will demolish the sacred pillars. He will burn down the temples of the gods of Egypt. Jeremiah 43, verse 12 and 13. And what is appropriate for our study is that Jesus is indicating that God will again convulse the heavenly bodies which people worship in their idolatry. 
Verse 26 of our text. For the heavenly bodies will be shaken. This is also the prediction of the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 13. He writes, see, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day, with wrath and fierce anger, to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. Well, of course, the moon is reflective light, right? So if the sun is darkened, then you don't have any light in the moon. He goes on. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. I will make man scarcer than pure gold, more scarce than the gold of Ophir. Therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake from its place at the wrath of the Lord Almighty in the day of his burning anger. Isaiah 13 verse 9 and following. Now what we need to know here is that this language is not hyperbole. It is not just shocking symbolism. No. How do we know that? Look at verse 26. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly heavenly bodies will be shaken. Why is that important? Well, no one faints because of exaggerated speech. This is not just exaggerated speech. But they will faint at convulsive and unpredictable events beyond their knowledge, beyond their control that they witness in the heavens. That will make them scared right down to their bones. Well, how shook is shaken when it says, we'll be shaken? How dark is darkened? When it comes to the sun, moon, and the stars, what does this mean? Revelation 8, John writes, The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. A third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night, Revelation 8, verse 12. Just think about that. Here we are, going through life, and suddenly a third of the sun's light blackened out. A third of the starlight blackened out. A third of the moon's light, of course it's reflective, blackened out. Well, how is this going to happen? Well, remember what we read about the plagues in Egypt? All Egypt was affected by the penetrating darkness that God sent upon the land, except the province of Goshen, which was a suburb where the Israelites lived. They had light. Egypt, by and large, did not have light. Well, how can that be? God can do miraculous things. That's how it can be. But on May 18, 1980, the top of Mount St. Helens blew off in a vast pyroclastic flow that shot 80,000 feet into the air, 
you can read about this. I checked it out on history doc link. An ash, I'm reading, I'm reading from that report. An ash plume roared out of the top of the mountain and within 15 minutes reached a height of 15 miles above the mountain. Prevailing winds blew dense clouds of black ash to the east, so this is in the west, blew it to the east, that, here it is, blocked the sun and turned day into total darkness over the land that it crossed. Wow. Now, brethren, that's one volcano in one state, the state of Washington, yet the ash cloud it produced blocked the light of the sun in regions 1,000 miles away. Ezekiel tells of a repeat of God's judgment on Egypt, saying in Ezekiel 32, I will cover the heavens and darken their stars. I will cover the sun with a cloud. And the moon will not give its light. Well, of course, because the moon's light is reflective. So if the sun's covered, no moonlight. Reading on. All the shining lights in the heavens, I will darken over you. I will bring darkness over your land, declares the sovereign Lord. I will trouble the hearts of many peoples when I bring about your destruction among the nations, among lands that you have not known. I will cause many people to be appalled at you. It's all reference to Egypt. You'll be appalled at you and their kings will shudder with horror because of you when I brandish my sword before them. On the day of your downfall, Egypt, this is what he's talking to, on the day of your downfall, each of them will tremble every moment for his life. Ezekiel 32, verse 7 and following. What then, my people, will it be like when one-third of the light-emitting orbs of the heavens are turned dark? One-third. In the judgment of the day of the Lord, Revelation 8, verse 12. So, firstly, there will be convulsions in the heavens. Secondly, there will be convulsions on earth and on the seas. Look at verse 25. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. God declared to Israel, For I am the Lord your God who churns up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord Almighty is his name. Isaiah 51 verse 15. Jeremiah puts it this way. This is what the Lord says. He who appointed the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and stars to shine by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord Almighty is his name. Jeremiah 31 verse 35. Amos wrote, The Lord, the Lord Almighty, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who live in it mourn. The whole land rises like the Nile, then sinks like the river of Egypt. Amos 9, verse 5. A few weeks ago I talked about the frequency of earthquakes 
since that's one of the signs of Christ's return, now we learn that the sea will have its day of dread as well. The roaring and tossing of the sea. I went on the tsunami warning system site. Maybe you didn't even know there was such a site, but there is. And I discovered that there were but nine, just nine recorded tsunamis from 1628 B.C., before Christ, to March of 1933. Just nine. So that's a total of 3,561 years. That works out to one tsunami every 396 years, or... 0.0025% per year. So they're kind of rare. You get the idea. They're kind of rare. But, but, from 1946 through February 6, there were 14 tsunamis in 67 years, or one on average every five years, and 8,268% increase. Let me say it again. An 8,268% increase in tsunamis. Since 1628 B.C. The Bible identifies God as setting foundations for the sea. I don't know if you know that does when job in arrogant protest against god's dealings with him said that he would like to some answers from god god demonstrated to him how little job knew by questioning him here it is who shut up the seas behind doors when it burst forth from the womb when I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place. When I said, thus far you may come and no farther. Here is where your proud ways must halt. Job 38, verse 8 and following. Think about it. A fixed limit for the sea, bars, a halt line. You know, don't, you're not going to cross this line. Literally, a line in the sand, right? We use that expression in our day. This is reality. But in times of judgment, this same God can and does shake the earth and the waves roar upon the shores past their previous boundaries to such a degree that many lose their lives and much destruction and of property lose. Losses also occur. Didn't we just see that in the recent hurricane, Michael? The storm surge in Florida from Michael was 12 feet. 12 feet. This room is 9 feet from the floor to the ceiling, so higher than this room. A 
a wall of water coming in on the shorelines. If you saw any of the pictures of Mexico Beach, one house stands down there. And that's because the guy built it to exacting standards to fight hurricanes. Drove pilings 25, 30 feet down, down through the sand and hit the rock. The worst tsunami on record occurred in Sumatra, Indonesia, in December 26 of 2004. That's not very far back. And it was an emergence from a 9.1 earthquake resulting in, get this, a wave 164 feet tall coming in. 164 feet tall. When it hit land, it moved three miles inland. It contributed to water heights. They were all, this is all on record. It contributed to water heights in the United States, the United Kingdom, and Antarctica. There's one wave. An estimated $10 billion worth of damage occurred. 230,000 people died. So my question, what will it be like at the roaring and tossing of the sea, verse 25, in the day of Jesus' return? Okay, but the sea is not the only entity to experience convulsing. It'll be convulsing in the earth. We've already taught of the increase of earthquakes in a previous study, but there's more, much more. God speaking through Jeremiah gives a summary of the extent of judgment on Jerusalem in the day of its destruction and a foretaste of things to come. Here's what he writes. My people are fools. They do not know me. They are senseless children. They have no understanding. They are skilled in doing evil. They know not how to do good. I looked at the earth, and it was formed, and at the heavens, and their light was gone. I looked at the mountains, and they were quaking. All the hills were swaying. I looked, and there were no people. Every bird in the sky had flown away. I looked, and the fruitful land was a desert. All its towns lay in ruin before the Lord, before his fierce, fierce anger. This is what the Lord says. The whole land will be ruined, though I will not destroy it completely. Therefore the earth will mourn, and the heavens above grow dark, because I have spoken and will not relent. I have decided I will not turn back. Jeremiah 4. Verse 22 and following. The land totally destitute. You ever look at any of the uh, pictures of uh, Berlin after the bombing of World War II? When the Allies went into Berlin? Just miles and miles of empty skeleton buildings no glass, no windows. They're all blown out and on the ground. 
just skeletons of concrete buildings. Hosea states the reason for all this. He says, Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There is only cursing, lying, murder, stealing, I'm reading scripture, stealing and adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows as bloodshed. Because of this, the land mourns and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea are dying. Hosea 4 verses 1 through 3. What is this? Well, It's a repeat of God's curse on creation. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, cursed is the ground because of you. When God isn't found in the land anymore, he brings about judgment. Nahum, another prophet, reminds us how God uses the things of nature in judgment. He writes, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and in the storm and in the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea. It dries up. He makes the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel, those are mountains, wither and blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence. The world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. Nahum chapter 1 verses 3 through 7. Habakkuk gives this vision. He says, God came to me from Tenem, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens, and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. He stood. He shook the earth. He looked. He made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed. His ways are eternal. Habakkuk 3, verse 3 through 6. Now all these prophets, they're writing similar things. So there's a, a constant theme here that God is giving through his prophets. Not just one prophecy, but when you add them together, it's many prophecies. The Apostle John describes the final landscape at the coming of Christ. Let me read it for you. This is from the Revelation. Then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since man has been on earth. So tremendous was the quake. The great city split into three parts and the cities of the nations collapsed. 
God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away. The mountains could not be found. Revelation 16, verse 18 and following. I would put it this way. We ain't seen nothing yet. Whatever the earth has experienced in all of its history, we ain't seen nothing yet. When Christ comes, wow. This is a tremendous wake-up call, sounding an alarm that cannot be explained away. Now, what is the reaction of people to the coming of Christ? What will it be? Well, number one, there there will be terror-stricken observers and recipients. Look at verse 25 and 26. There will be signs in the sun and the moon and the stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror. Yeah. Apprehensive of what is coming on the world. For the heavenly bodies will be shaken. They're going to see it all. Can you imagine? They're just thinking, what, what, what in the world is happening? What's going on? I can see them looking in the heavens. Sensing these things? One would have to be an utter fool or an imbecile not to be afraid for your life at the onslaught of such horrific upheaval in the creation. Because we would conclude hey, this is not normal, right? I mean, there's earthquakes, there's hurricanes, there's tornadoes, but the shaking of the bodies in the heavens, the stars. The moon losing its light. Things turning to dark. Hmm. You know, there's a lot of talk these days about climate change and global warming, melting of the glacier ice pack, and of late, about asteroids and meteors passing just a little too close for comfort to Earth's atmosphere. Environmentalists are pushing hard to reduce carbon emissions with the hope that these reductions will keep the ice pack in place. So in 2005, the Congress passed the NASA Authorization Act. What is the NASA Authorization Act? It reads in part, let me read it. The U.S. Congress has declared that the general welfare and security of the United States requires that the unique competence of NASA be directed to detecting, tracking, cataloging, and characterizing near-Earth asteroids and comets in order to provide warning and mitigation of the potential hazard of such near-Earth objects to the Earth. Now, that's a lot of gobbledygook that says we've established a, an aspect of NASA to look for asteroids and tell us if they're getting a little too close to Earth. And to do this, a program known as Linear, L-I-N-E-A-R, operates in New Mexico with two one-meter telescopes and one half-meter telescope and another program called Space Watch uses a 90-centimeter telescope sighted at the Kitt Peak 
Observatory in Arizona. They're watching the skies. They keep updating with automatic pointing, imaging, and analysis equipment to search the skies for intruders. And that was set in place in 1980. Collision avoided avoidances strategies were also included. The use of, get this, nuclear pulse propulsion. M MIT worked on that as the pilot program clear back in 1967. Or kinetic impact, the crushing, uh, crashing a space crash into craft into the asteroid to knock it off course. Think about that. <laughs> We're going to send up a little rocket and try to crash it into an asteroid that's heading for the Earth to kind of divert the asteroid away so it won't hit the Earth. And the latest is an ion beam. An ion beam proposed by the University of Madrid to slowly push NEOs, NEO stands for near earth objects, to push them off course so that they don't hit the earth. We are talking here of billions and billions of dollars wasted on futility. We're going to hit the asteroid with an ion beam to kind of try to push it so it won't hit the earth. When the sun is shaded, and thus its warmth and its light reduced by one-third, when, as Isaiah predicted, all the stars of the heavens will be dissolved and the sky rolled up like a scroll, all the starry hosts will fall like a withered leaf from the vine, like shriveled figs from a fig tree. Isaiah 34, verse 4. When that happens, when great and powerful earthquake reduces the mountains to plains, and churns the sea to promote mammoth destructive tsunamis, it's ludicrous to think that an energy pulse from a laser or a nuclear blast from a rocket is going to divert any of that. But we're trying. Rather, the reaction of the idolatrous humanity will be this. Let me read it for you. It's in scripture. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves among the rocks of the mountains. And they called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, hide us, from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? Who can stand? Revelation 6, verse 15 and following. One category of people will stand. One category. They're in our text. Look at verse 27 and 28. At that time they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And when these things begin to take place, stand up! 
Lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing nigh. And that's said to believers. Get up. Look up. Not a time for you to be afraid. The believers who were martyred for their faith preferred death over damnation. And that same faith in God relieves the fears of God's people on judgment day. How so? The scripture says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's how so. Romans 8 verse 1. When's that going to occur? And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation. Having received him, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1 verse 13. So what's our fate? And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Philippians 4 7. Well how can we be at peace when such turmoil and death and dying is found everywhere? For the Lord himself will come from down from heaven with a loud command with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. First Thessalonians 4, verse 16 and 17. That's how come. Well, I'm a sinner, so what's... What about God's judgment for sin? Peter answers, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 1 Peter 2 verse 24. Well, how do we obtain the forgiveness of Jesus' cross work? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. John 3.16 Well, what does that mean for me on the day of judgment when the Bible warns for the great day of the wrath of has, how his wrath has come? Who can stand? Revelation 6, verse 17. Well, Jesus, through the Apostle Paul, says, For God did not appoint us. God did not appoint us to suffer wrath. <laughs> that's, that's how come. But to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9. How do I know that all these things will come true? Verse 33 of our text. Heaven and earth will pass away. That's true. But my words, my promises will never pass away. Can you not hear the plea of God in Ezekiel's message? Say to them, Ezekiel, say to them, As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Ezekiel 33, verse 11. Why indeed? We turn away from our sins unto Christ. You have nothing to fear about the future coming of judgment. 
But if you don't know Christ, everything that I taught today about the coming wrath of God will be your portion. And you don't want to be there. You don't want to experience that. Lord, we thank you for your grace. Not only do you say that judgment is coming, but you provided a way out, a way out for us. Well, it's only one way. It's the Lord through the Lord Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, taking God's wrath and God's punishment for the sins of his people. That's what I need. I need a step in. I need a stand-in substitute. I need an advocate. That is found only in Jesus Christ. So I pray, Lord, that you will bless us with the truth and bless us with faith. If we don't have faith in Christ, please grant that to us today, right now. Grant us faith in his atoning work. Not in our righteousness, because we're not righteous. Not on what we think we've done that are good deeds, no. But our faith should be in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished for the forgiveness and cleansing of our sins. Thank you for the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And we pray this morning in the name of Jesus that you will be forgiving that you will deliver us from the wrath to come. So that all these texts that we studied this morning won't be true of us, but rather the truth that we are delivered from the wrath to come by God's grace. We ask these things, firstly and foremost, for your glory, for you are glorified every time one, just one person, comes to know you as Savior. That's a glorious, glorious praise. We also praise and thank you for our good, for the gospel is for our good. You haven't left us in the dark. We're not in that dark cave where we can't see our fingers in front of our face. Light has dawned in the world. Though men love darkness, when you come into our lives, the light shines and we see and believe. Grant that light to us in Christ's name. Amen. Our closing hymn is from Trinity 251. We'll stand as we sing. 251.
O Lord, our only glory is in the cross. Paul says we don't brag about anything else except Jesus. The reason we brag on Jesus because of his willing sacrifice and because of his accomplished work. There's nothing left for us to do. We sing one of the hymns here, Jesus paid it all, yeah. So all to him we owe. I pray that you'll bless these truths to our heart. In the day of judgment, it'll be a marvelous thing for us to rest solely and completely upon the Lord Jesus Christ and his work. We won't be looking at our puny little ledger, this good deed or that good deed, to try to stand before an almighty and holy God. No, we'll be standing there under the shadow of the cross and under the merit of Jesus Christ and his shed blood. For that, we give you great thanks. Help us to live our lives in appreciation. Amen. We're dismissed.